Amen. Thank you, Jay. Would you pray with me? Oh God, God of love, God of all glory, would you captivate our hearts and minds today with a clear vision of you? Would you bless us with your spirit, not only to be faithful to your word today, but would you please give us a vision of true glory to help us follow after you and to abide in your love? Help us to orient our lives around your steadfast love in pursuit of your glory, the way that we interact with your children and in the ways that our faith gives expression. Father, please give me the strength to proclaim this word today. Give us all humility to receive it and please give us the clarity to walk in it. Amen. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Josh. I'm one of the, the pastors here uh, at Church of the Valley. Uh, today's message uh, I'm calling Fragile Faith, True Love, and Brilliant Glory. Fragile Faith, True Love, and Brilliant Glory. I've restructured this message about 18 times as I've thought through it, um, and the reason for that is that John's writing here in the gospel, that this, this, this apostle of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus, um, if you're a, a linear thinker kind of like me, um, and also in my opinion like the apostle Paul, uh, John might mess with your mind a little bit because he, he kind of writes in circular ways. Uh, ways that repeat or re-express certain themes. He develops a story out of what he is saying, whereas Paul might write in a way that fits better in a legal setting, for example. So if you're a note taker, feel free to get after it today. Uh, but if your brain hurts, blame John, not me. So brilliant glory. The beauty of God and the backdrop of darkness. The beauty of God and the backdrop of darkness. Let's pause to remember where we are in this story. Chapter 13 of the book of John. Jesus had just taken the humble role of a servant to wash the feet of his disciples before dinner. They don't realize it, but the 12 disciples who are eating together, and they're sharing the most important meal in history, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus has just uttered some of the most incredible words, saying that one of them is about to betray him. And John, who is very likely right next to Jesus at the table, he leans over quietly to ask Jesus, who is it? And Jesus answered softly enough that the others don't seem to realize what's going on. 
But now John knows who the betrayer is. Jesus communicates to Jesus, to Judas. Jesus communicates to Judas to leave and to do so quickly. And the very thing, the very next thing after this betrayal is set in motion is Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. So in the midst of the darkest hour of Jesus' life, he will shine most brightly with the glory of God. And at this point, if we, if we pause and put the pieces together from the story, only John knows what's going on. Only John feels the confusion, the amazement, as he tries to figure out and interpret everything that's happening before him. The three years that John has seen and experienced with Jesus and Judas, all of it is now taking on a new meaning. His understanding, his, interpre- his inter- interpretation of reality is now making tectonic shifts in his mind. And it's in this context and in this moment that Jesus says, seemingly abruptly, talks of glory. One commentary that I looked at said that the departure of Judas at night is to be seen not only as literal, but also symbolic. Night represents the antithesis of Jesus, who is the light. It is the darkness of unbelief and opposition where people stumble and find themselves in a fruitless search for life. Therefore, Judas represents a person that's described like in John 3.19, where light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. If you're here last week, you heard Wes mention, I believe he used the example of a diamond. But in order to see the best and the brightest beauty in a diamond, we place it against a black cloth, a very dark backdrop. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The theme of the next few chapters that we read in the book of John, we're going to take the next couple of months to go through it. Um, but the, the, one of the themes is glory. And so today I'm not going to try to give the fullest explanation of glory because we're going to have lots of opportunity to do, to do so. Um, but if we could today, I want to give you a little taste of the glory. See what it tastes like. You're supposed to laugh at that. Um, Nacho Libre fans in here? No? Two? Okay. Okay, the sermon's, sermon's for you guys. Okay, so some of you know this already, but the word in the, for glory in the New Testament comes from the Greek word doxa. Just like the song that we just sung, the doxology. That's where we get this word. It means that there's an end, there's a purpose, there's a meaning to everything we are and everything we do as believers, and it is the glory of God. You know, I don't remember growing up hearing a lot about the glory of God, but I I feel like at least maybe in the last 15 years or so that it's become just kind of one of those popular things that we say in, in Christianese 
Um, and I don't listen to a lot of Christian music radio, um, but when I have turned it on uh, and they, there's songs and, and talk about the glory of God uh, or bringing glory to God, uh, to me that's a sign that um, it's, it's reached its peak popularity. Um, Tim Keller, who recently passed away, uh, but he ministered in Manhattan for decades. Even less than 10 years ago, he said um, that what he believes, he believes mo- most people today have trouble like grasping, understanding the word glory, both inside and outside of the church. Now, if you talk about God's love, God's wisdom, God's power, it, it's something that we can, we can grasp a, a little bit more easily, but God's glory feels abstract, feels vague, maybe remote. Um, in my opinion, kind of like math sometimes. Um, it's funny, just this week, my, my wife, um, she's smarter than me, uh, but she came home uh, from work and, and kind of had this little smile on her face, and she's like, Josh, I got to do a quadratic equation today at work. And I'm like, what? What does that even mean? Like, yeah, I, I learned it like a long time ago. <laughs> but it was, it was so funny. Like, I, I, I literally not only didn't remember it, but I can't even remember hearing those words for 20 years, uh, let alone understand what she was talking about. But she was excited about it. So she gets it. I didn't. The biblical word for glory, doxa, in different places in the New Testament carries the meaning of value, weight, or worth. Kind of like the parable where, uh, that Jesus spoke of where the man sold everything he had so that he could go buy a field because there was such an incredible treasure in it. And that treasure far outweighed his current possessions. But the word doxa also carries with it a sense of beauty and brilliance. Kind of like when, when Moses came down from the mountain after spending time in the presence of God and his face was shining so brightly, so incredibly that people couldn't even look at him. So the glory of God is something like the beauty, attractiveness, excellence, or what Keller called the overwhelming superlativeness, that might not be a word you've heard in 20 years, of God's attributes put together that leads you to give everything you have and everything you are to serve him because of his infinite worth. I'll say that again. The glory of God is something like the beauty attractiveness, excellence, or the overwhelming superlativeness of God's attributes put together, displaying his infinite worth. So where we are in the book of John, God has already been honored and glorified by Jesus' life of perfect obedience to that point. But now, the hour of glorification has dawned. So if we step into John's shoes here and in the days to come. Jesus is saying, John doesn't know about 
what's, what's about to happen. But Jesus is saying right now, God's glory is to be manifested through Jesus. Right now, as Judas leaves us behind after three years to literally go betray Jesus. Right now, as the Passover is about to begin and Jesus is about to suffer horrifically and then die utterly, unjustly. Right now, as D.A. Carson said, the supreme moment of God's self-disclosure, the greatest display of God's glory was in the shame of the cross. How could this be? We think the glory of God should be explained by power and worth and wealth. What could be more powerless? What could be more worthless than to be whipped and nailed to a tree to die? J.C. Ryle, who was an English pastor who died in the year 1900, we still read some of his books and commentaries. He said it this way, and this isn't a direct quote because I want to make it a little bit more readable. God showed the glory of his wisdom in providing a place where he could be just and the justifier of the ungodly, where he showed his holiness, where he showed the glory of his love and compassion and patience and willingness to submit to such unimaginable horrors when Jesus could have simply summoned angels to set himself free. The love of God shines most gloriously in this way. He said, on the cross, God's love and God's holiness are shown most brightly and most fully together. In a twist of events, and in the tectonic shift in John's brain and his heart, as he grasps the gospel unfolding in these moments and in these days, think about it. What could be more beautiful than that someone is willing to lose all of his beauty for us? What could be more glorious than to lose all of his glory willingly for us. I believe uh, John Calvin wrote in uh, his native French language, um, but I have his uh, commentaries uh, in, in an English translation, um, and sometimes it's... Uh, potentially hard to read or hard to understand um, in that English translation, but this, and this is a long quote, but it is so good if you can follow. And I had to look up this word, ignominy. It means shame or disgrace. Whatever shame then may be seen in the cross fitted to confound believers, yet Christ testifies that the same cross brings glory and honor to him. For it was a paradoxical statement that the glory of the Son of Man arose from a death which was reckoned 
disgraceful or shameful among men and was even accursed before God. He shows, therefore, in what manner he would obtain glory to himself from such a death. It is because by it he glorifies God the Father. For in the cross of Christ, as in a magnificent theater, the inestimable goodness of God is displayed before the whole world. In all the creatures, indeed both high and low, the glory of God shines, but nowhere has it shone more brightly than in the cross, in which there has been an astonishing change of things. The condemnation of all men has been manifested. Sin has been blotted out. Salvation has been restored to men. And in short, the whole world has been renewed and everything restored to good order. He promises, therefore, that when this disgrace or ignominy, which he shall endure for a short time, when that has been erased, illustrious honor will be displayed in his death. And this too was accomplished for the death of the cross, which Christ suffered, is so far from obscuring his high rank that in that death, that in that death, his high rank is chiefly displayed. Since there, his amazing love to mankind, his infinite righteousness in atoning for sin and appeasing the wrath of God, his wonderful power in conquering death, subduing Satan, and at length, opening heaven, blazed with full brightness. Okay, we'll say a little bit more about glory later, but for now, I want to move on to our second point today. True love. Love in the context of betrayal. Okay, I don't know about you, but in my understanding and my experience, when someone knows that death is right around the corner, they don't talk typically about trivialities. And as we'll see in the coming months, these next few chapters of John are, is really one long and important message that Jesus has for his closest disciples. And here he speaks not only of the worth and the value and the beauty of God, but he also speaks of love. And it's not like Jesus is like, okay, Judas left. Difficult guy has left the room. Let's just go through a lesson on glory and love. Okay? No, Jesus says, now. Now I am glorified in the face of betrayal. Now I am glorified in the backdrop of evil and darkness. Now I'm going to teach you about love. Okay, we should put ourselves in the room again at this dinner. When Judas is dismissed by Jesus, the atmosphere in the room must change dramatically. And I think it was Sinclair Ferguson who Wes quoted last week, but I think he said that we should wonder in this instance if Judas stared Jesus down as he walked out the door or if Judas couldn't even bear to look at Jesus 
as he left. Another pastor I, I listened to said that this is like trying to give someone a hug and they stab you in the back instead. So what comes to mind when you hear Jesus' words? This is a new commandment, love one another. How do you think John interpreted the words here? Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. I think it's easy to kind of hear this on its own and, and not provide context. And, and, and then we, where we end up is we just think about, oh, we're just supposed to copy Jesus. An imitation of Jesus, copying Jesus, learning from Jesus absolutely has its place. But if that's all that we do, then we will miss the gospel. We'll, we'll miss a lot of things. And, and there's a lot that we can imitate about Jesus, but we cannot imitate the atonement of Christ by the death on the cross. That's only something that God can do. So when the disciples hear Jesus say this, they would probably immediately just think back maybe like an hour before and, and what Jesus had just done where he washed their feet. And what they don't realize and what they don't understand yet is the incredible love that Jesus is about to show them on the cross. This moment to John was probably so intense, so deep, so memorable that it would shape all of his life and ministry after, including the letter of 1 John. What does Jesus say right after speaking of glory? He uses the words, and it's one word in Greek, but he uses the words here, little children. We don't see that word anywhere else in the New Testament besides here and in 1 John. And in 1 John, he says it seven times. It becomes John's favorite word for the people in his church, the people that he shepherds later in life. It's also worth noting that the words new commandment also don't come, come up anywhere in the New Testament except here and it and in John's letters as well. So from the group of disciples, only John picks up on little children. Only John picks up on this new commandment. And it's probably because as he's the only one who's, who knows that Judas is about to betray Jesus and he, wa he, he watches this play out, this was probably just a, a very, very jarring or significant moment to him. So what I learned studying this week is that the letter of 1 John is, could accurately be said to be like an exposition of these couple of verses here in John 13. The command to love is not really new 
think it originally shows up in Leviticus 19, a long time before Jesus. So what is Jesus saying? What is he driving at here? If we, if we look at 1 John 2, when John's writing, the same John, he says that it's, it, it's not a new commandment. Actually, it is an old one. And that you've heard it from the beginning. But at the same time, it is a new commandment. Is your brain hurt yet? True in him and true in you. Why? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. See how we're reaching back to glory and light and darkness? And John goes on in chapter, 1 John chapter 2, If you love your brother, you walk in the light. If you hate your brother, you're still in darkness. If you love your brother, you abide in the light. But if you hate your brother, you walk in darkness. And then if you walk in the light, if you are the children of God, then your sins are forgiven. You know God and you have overcome the evil one and the word of God abides in you. The new commandment to love one another is also new because of the new covenant. Nowhere in history before has God loved us and the uniqueness of God loving us by taking on human flesh so that he can love his people by dying and rising for them. Jesus comes with light and the darkness has started to pass away. There is a future light, but the light is already here. There is a future glory, but the now, at the time of betrayal and crucifixion, the glory is already here. The kingdom has already come, but it is not fully come. The new commandment of love is true in us because he makes us new. He makes us born again. He makes a new creation. God transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The love among the brothers and in the church is that you will lay down your life for each other. It's a new commandment in a way because John is now connecting the dots between Jesus and God. Nowhere in 1 John, if you read the whole, the whole letter of 1 John, he actually never says love of Jesus. He doesn't talk about Jesus' love. He only refers to the love of God. And it's because he is so blown away by Jesus that he realizes here in John 13, at this moment, he shared dinner with God. That God loved him. That God died for him. That God spent time with him. That God washed his feet. that God became a friend to him. And putting all the focus in 1 John on the love of God in Jesus actually maximizes the love of Jesus. The new commandment is new because it is fueled by the glory of the cross. 
fueled by the magnitude of what Jesus went through and what he did, that is our model and that is our strength. That has never existed before. So God gets to define love because he created love. John says that God is love. We hear a lot about love in our world today. We hear a lot about self-love in our world today. But I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't give us a command. He doesn't give us a suggestion even to focus on self-love or loving yourself first so that you can go love someone else. Because I think that God assumes that we do this already. But he now says that the mark of true discipleship, the mark of truly following God is love, and love particularly for God's people. It's not a generic love for the world that we see elsewhere in the Bible, which is also true, but it is love for each other in the body of Christ. Jesus' point here is not, it's, it's not for people to know, oh, well, yep, you're a Christian. Like that, it's not for people to know, well, okay, you're a part of this church. It's not for people to know, like, you're part of a denomination or, or some movement, some Christian group. Those are the things that we tend to get caught up in. But Jesus' point is, How will people know if you have been given a new heart of love for God, love and commitment for the Jesus that is revealed here in the Bible, love for his followers? How will they know if you are a real disciple? 1 John says things like, whoever loves has been born of God. It says, we we know we have passed from death to life because we love He says, you can know who are the children of God and those of the devil by those who love or do not love. If you don't love, then you don't know God because God is love. Again, it's about connection with Jesus, life with Jesus, being united with Jesus, not simply imitating Jesus As John Piper said, it's about life and salvation and love. It's about God breaking into the world and he's going to fill it with his newness, his power, his beauty, his salvation, and he's bringing people into that newness. And so when we love, we love with his love. In his loving and dying for us, we are now grafted into him like a vine, to use another analogy that Jesus spoke of, so that our love for each other is actually participation in his life, in his light, in his love. There's so much more that the Bible says about love, like how love fulfills the law, how it covers a multitude of sins, says that our love should be genuine, 
It says that we have all the amazing gifts of the Spirit, but we don't have love. We are nothing. It says how love is patient and kind. How it doesn't get jealous or lust or arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. And I think we look over this one, it's, it isn't irritable or resentful. Because love bears all things, as Paul said. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. And love never ends because God is love and God is eternal and he has invited us to participate in that love forever. All right. Fragile faith. Chris said I had a three-hour sermon today, but it's not. I used to have a three-hour sermon, and I cut it down. So, for you and for me. Fragile faith. Discipleship is progressive, not linear. Let's go back to the dinner table. Jesus had just washed Judas' feet moments ago. Judas might have been sitting next to Jesus on his left at this meal. And at this point, now Jesus is very emotionally distressed. And as we'll find out, it's going to get a lot worse later that night. But there's some contrast between Judas and Peter. This is not a good moment for Peter. But there is a contrast that I want to highlight between them. We don't see it here, but if we look at the same story in the book of Matthew, Judas, in some of his last words to Jesus, calls Jesus rabbi or teacher. But in this chapter, chapter 13 of John, Peter calls Jesus Lord at least twice. And in this chapter, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Because he is both. But I want to highlight this distinction because at the most critical moment at this point in discipleship, Judas backs off from expressing true faith, and Peter at least gets it right to say that Jesus is Lord. 1 John 3.23 says, This is God's commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So thinking back to Jesus talking about love, John seems to think that love and faith go together. He doesn't just talk about love and, and you can define it on its own and it, and it sits on its own, but he, he sees it as inseparably linked to faith. Faith in a God who is Savior and Teacher and Lord. Faith that trusts in God who has given us the tracks to run on. 
If you've been around Church of the Valley for a while, you've heard many CrossFit analogies or comments from Justin, and I am going to spare you of that. But you're going to have to bear with me because I'm going to, I like to talk about biking. Um, on Friday, I was, um, I, I, I don't live too far from here, and, and what I like to do um, for some exercise is try to head up the canyon um, a little cottonwood. And, Walt, do you have that first picture there? Okay. So if you spend any significant time in the canyon, you'll recognize where this is. But, um, but at least according to Strava, this is part of what they call the hard mile. And I'd say it's probably about three quarters of the way before you get to Snowbird as you're going up the canyon. Uh, it's, it's like something like a, maybe like a 10% grade. Not insane, but definitely um, painful. And I was, I was thinking through this because in my mind this um, felt like a good analogy for, for me in discipleship. So let's say that discipleship is like heading up this road in the canyon. And, and this stretch, it's pretty straight, but it's steep. You got Tanner's Flat over there on the right. That's the, that's the pull-off there. Um, the Bible calls being a disciple um, walking on the narrow road. And for Judas, everybody thought he was a disciple. But he wasn't a true disciple because, let's say that he's on the shoulder of the road the whole time. So it seems like he's on the road. Um, And nobody really thinks anything of it. He's doing well enough that nobody suspects the darkness in his heart. And then all of a sudden, he just falls off. He decides, this is not worth it. And he gives up at a time where there's no railings, no shoulder. Sometimes the shoulder disappears. And that's why in 1 John, again, John speaks of these these words, they went out from among us because he lived it in the most incredible, heart-wrenching way. His friend and co-laborer Judas in the most incredible years of his life and perhaps of all history walks out, says it's not worth it. I'm going to hold on to that silver in my hands. But Peter is on the road. Even though we see, especially here, that Peter's faith is a bit challenged. Now we feel Peter's struggle, his confusion, his pain, his lack of motivation. So maybe it's like you're on this road and the sun's beating down on you. There's no shade on this stretch. Maybe you're just tired at this point because you've been climbing for a while. Maybe you smell the campfire over on the right and like just like that's where you want to be. You're just distracted. Maybe you're thinking of Oktoberfest, just another mile or two up. Um, 
Maybe the air is getting a little bit thin. It's hard to breathe. But the best route and the most difficult is just to keep going straight. But discipleship, following Jesus, kind of looks like this. Sometimes that's me. Sometimes it looks like you're actually going backwards. Maybe you're about to fall off. Maybe you're about to be hit by a car. But ultimately, ultimately, you keep going in the right direction. And Peter is like this. He's like this here. He's hit some rough patches. It doesn't look good, but he keeps going. He stays on the narrow path. He calls Jesus Lord. He's at least got that right. Man, can you imagine Jesus' patience for Peter? It's like this is the second time at this dinner when it's like, like I think of it like talking to my kids sometimes. Like, not only are you not obeying, but you're just, oh my gosh, you just don't get it. And Peter rebukes Jesus for washing his feet, but it's not like Peter offers, like, let me do this for everybody. He doesn't even do that. And then Jesus rebukes him. And so then Peter's like, well, wash all of me. And Jesus is like, no, God, no. <laughs> you don't get it. It's not necessary. You don't get it now, but you will get it later. And we know a lot of the story of Peter later in life. And here in this moment, Peter's like, I would die for you. And Jesus is like, dude, you do not get it. Because you don't know yourself. Your faith is so fragile that you're, you're actually about to look like an apostate. Peter failed because of overconfidence and pride. His identity at this point was formed more by his own obedience and commitment. His identity was based on his own performance rather than God's love, God's commitment, God's strength. And discipleship is not defined by how much self-confidence that you have by how you stack up to somebody else. Peter did not know the depths of his own heart, so much so that hours later, he would call down curses on Jesus in order to prove to the random people next to him that he wasn't a follower of Jesus. Like, how, how incredible is that? And it can be scary and it can be dark, but if we don't believe and abide in Jesus, that's how it can look. But we can still ultimately follow Jesus. We can still choose today. Today is the day of repentance. Today I will follow you. Today I will walk with you. 
Discipleship is a journey, and over time, true disciples, you will see the transformation that will occur. So I want to invite the, the band uh, back up here, and as well as the prayer team, whenever you're ready, I would love to invite you up as well. So as, as we close today, is Jesus at the center of your life? Does he define your identity? Does he inform your understanding of what it's like to have faith and to walk by faith? Sometimes discipleship today feels like we just took some self-care and sprinkled some Christianity on top of it. And Jesus doesn't start at the center Eventually, he's already on the periphery. And if he's already on the periphery, at some point, you're, he's not even going to be needed anymore, like Judas. But what we aim for at Church of the Valley, for you, for ourselves, is that we all become the children of God by faith alone in Jesus alone. And secondly, that we increasingly become resilient, compelling, missional disciples and this only comes from tasting the glory of God, from experiencing the love of God in what Jesus has done on the cross for us and rising from death for us. From seeking to learn to love God's people in the same love that Jesus embodied for us. So here's the thing. Whether you're considering becoming a Christian or whether you followed Jesus for decades, Sometimes we don't even really know what we're getting into when we decide to follow Jesus and when we decide to keep following Jesus. I wasn't able to spend a lot of time with, with this today, but part of the effects of gazing at the glory of God and grasping the glory of God is to increasingly gain a vision for how he can use you both here and the years to come. How motivated would we be if we could see what God sees is possible for us? These disciples had no idea what they were getting into. And the glory of the story just keeps unfolding over time as they resolve to continue to follow Jesus. So saying yes to Jesus, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, so much better then whatever it is, you're clenching in your hands right now. John Tyson said this, as long as you keep showing up, God's going to change you and use you. So how is God calling you today? What lesser glory are you settling for in your life? What is defining your identity more than the love of God? Is it your money? Is it your career, your sexuality, your family stability? Who is the spirit placing on your mind to love with the love of God? And how is your faith resting in your own performance rather than in the love and power of God? And if you don't know quite how God is working in you right now, um, 
Recently, I heard a, a pastor in San Francisco close out a sermon this way with a prayer and a practice. And I, I thought this was a good way to end. Um, I think I have a prayer to put up, maybe. Okay. So if you don't know how the Lord is calling you right now, just please ponder this prayer, read this prayer, bring your heart before the Lord. But a practice as well that I would encourage all of us this week to do is simply read the the letter of 1 John and let the Spirit of God form your heart and mind as you seek to grasp the love of God. And our prayer team today would be happy to serve you and love you by giving a listening ear and helping you bring your requests before God today whether for yourself or someone in your heart, as you sense God moving today. So please feel free to come forward and bring your request to God. I'll also uh, go to the back as well today if you'd like to, to step into the back. So God be with us. Thank you.